Glad that you all are here to study the Bible with me, along with me. And uh, before we get started, let's let us go to God in prayer. Our Father, who is so wonderful, who has made us so well, who is perfect, who is awesome. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord God, for another opportunity we have to spend time studying about you together. And later on, Lord, willing to worship you together. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for it been writ for allowing it to be written so long ago, but still to be so for, for us to be so able to use it today and be applicable to our lives this day. We ask that you be with us through this study, that you be with us, Lord God, as we strive to be your children. To be that light in the world that we can show others uh, the way towards Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, good morning to you all. Glad to be here with you. We'll be starting and um, beginning our series in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And I know you might be just like I was when I first uh, learned what we would be studying this quarter. That's a lot of... That's a lot of reading. That's a lot to try to cover in just 12 weeks. And Lord willing, we'll be able to do that. But here's something that I love about Bible study is that we get to use our Bibles. So I ask that you please bring your Bibles to class, whether it's in uh, hard copy or electronic form. And I also ask uh, that you read the scriptures before class, because we're not going to read through all of them together. There are things that we're going to go over. There are some scriptures that we're going we're going to read together. But um, yeah, we only have twelve weeks to get through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Um, but we will get through it. But again, you need to read your own Bibles uh, so that you can you'll be able to follow along better in class. So starting with our our study, uh, something that you need to know about. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, Chronicles. That is, uh, is that they're almost the same books. They almost say the same things. They cover a lot of the same information, and so we will not be reading um, in both places where First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles are saying the same things. We'll, we will definitely point out where they differ. I'll be using New King James Version doing. Doing this series uh, is just easier to read uh, for me for, for these lessons. And really, when you look at First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Chronicles, um, when it was originally written, really were to be made like two books. But of course, man has, has separated in the way he did. So today we'll go through our introduction and then get through the um, first chapter of uh, First Kings. So in our uh, previous study that we've had in 1st and 2nd Samuel, we traced the origin of the monarchy in Israel and showed the establishment of the ruling family of David. The books of Kings take up the history of the kingdom from David's last days, which we can read about um, in 1st Kings chapter 1, and follow it to its collapse at the time of the Babylonian exile. The purpose of this record, the purpose of, of these books, 
is not primarily to write down the history of the period. A lot of times when we read the Old Testament books, especially like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you know, Joshua, all, all these different books, there is a lot of history that is covered. Um, some of it is just like, wow, that's a lot of killing that went on. Some of it is, I find very comical. Uh, there's, there's comedy in the Bible as well. Um, some of it is just, wow, these are a lot of names. Why are we having to cover who begot who, who begot who, who begot who? But it comes into play later on as we continue to study God's word. But these books demonstrate that God blesses those, and, and, and we're gonna, you're gonna hear this and see this, hopefully throughout these books in first second kings first second chronicles that god um, blesses those who obey him and punishes those who defy him that has not changed the hebrew title for this material in, in is uh kings for its subject is the kings or are the kings of judah and israel so if you remember if you're a uh, uh, Bible scholar or a new Old Testament scholar, and if not, you may remember, you may not know that the nation divided into uh, two kingdoms when Solomon died around uh, 930 BC. The northern kingdom, which would be referred to as Israel, had 10 tribes and is sometimes uh, called by his leading tribe, Ephraim. You may see that several times as we're reading. The southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah, had two tribes, and they were made up of Judah and Benjamin. The northern tribe, or excuse me, the northern kingdom had nine dynasties and 20 kings. But the southern kingdom had one dynasty, and that was David's dynasty, and it also had 20 kings. The southern kingdom lasted a lot longer than the northern kingdom. Israel did not have one righteous king. But eight kings of Judah were given some degree of praise. That doesn't mean they were given total praise, but they were given some degree of praise. These books of kings cover approximately 400 uh, years of history, of Hebrew history, that is. Like the first, um, like first and second Samuel, as we've, we've studied um, some time ago, these two books were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible. The present division originated in the Sept Septuagint. Now, before I go on, as I was looking this up, the Septuagint, I see it a lot of times in um, study Bibles that I have. It is the Old Testament translated into the Greek. The reason why it's called, <coughs> it's named Septuagint, it comes from the Latin word Septu, Septuagenta, which means 70. It arose in the 3rd century B.C. and it is called the Septuagint because 70 to about 72 Jewish scholars reportedly took part in the translation, uh, in the translation process. This is important that we understand this piece because of what we're going to be reading about. So it originated in the Septuagint and was likely due to the amount of space required to write the material in Greek as opposed to Hebrew. So it's kind of like um, when, when we were stationed in Japan um, or any other country I've been to, in English, we may say whatever we need to say, and it's about this big in a sentence. But in, in Japan, it was like a long, a long scroll just to say that one thing or in another language. So it'll be the same thing with Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew was just written 
out a whole lot longer than possibly the Greek. And the Greek, if you remember, many of the uh, ancient world, many in the ancient world spoke Greek or want to learn Greek because it was kind of like English now. You can go, all the countries I've been to, I, m- I remember when I was going to the Philippines, they said, hey, you're going to have to learn T- Tagalog, uh, which is one of the languages that they speak there. Um, but there's kind of universal there and you need to really get it down pat because um, you're going to be speaking in a lot over there. So I studied, studied, studied and got there and they spoke perfect English. I never had to speak that language. I was like, well, that was a waste of my time. They wanted to speak more English than that. I wanted to speak Tagalog. And the Septuagint Samuel and Kings were um, regarded as continuous history. So if you as you should be able to uh, read the Bible in this way, but there's so much there. You start with First Samuel and you just keep on going, and it just all flows together. Collectively, they were called or named the Books of Kingdoms and were identified as First, Second, Third, and Fourth Kings. Of course, that was uh, when the when it was originally divided. So there is a there is some debate out there about who authored First um, Second Kings, First Second Chronicles. Uh, many believe, and and I tend to agree, that Jeremiah wrote um, the book. The issues that come up is that um, well, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Josiah, you know, the young king, and remain and the remaining kings of Judah to the time of the exile. And you can read that about about that in Jeremiah and Lamentations. But the events at the end of Second Kings were evidently written by someone in Babylon. But see, Jeremiah was taken to Egypt, taken to Egypt after the fall of Judah, um, according to Jeremiah forty-three, verses one through seven. So that's why there's some some issues there. But either way, Jeremiah wrote it, or somebody that was a contemporary of Jeremiah um, did it. Edo and twenty-three, the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. And lastly, the book of Chronicles of Kings of Israel, you can, it's re- talked about in 1 Kings 14, 19, and, verse, and chapter 15, verse 31. So the message and the theme of the books of Kings, they attempt to show that the fate of Israel depended on their observance of the Lord's covenant with them. The same with God's people today. And this is, this is very important. The tone of the books, when we read it, you should understand that this is a a compassionate historian, someone who was really involved with what was going on, for all the detail that is given here. Uh, The reign of each king is assessed or assessed not according to his political or historical uh, significance, but according to his spiritual life. Understand what I'm saying here. It doesn't matter how long someone served. It doesn't matter that, oh, they served for, you know, 50-something years. That must mean that God blessed them and loved them um, because, well, he just didn't take them out of, take them him out of uh, rule. Whereas others, they served for a shorter amount of time. Oh, they must have been terrible kings, and that's why God removed them. Nope, that, that's not true. If you look at Second Kings chapter 15, you will find that Azariah or Uzziah ruled Judah for 50 years. And, has, and appears to have been powerful and prosperous. But there are only seven verses written about him in, there in Second Kings. 
This example uh, shows that it does not matter about the time, strength, social or political or economic rule that a person may have. The worth of a life is measured in um, one way only, in their relationship, in our relationship with God and to do his will. Whenever you read any of the prophets uh, in, in scripture here, you'll see this. So further along in this introduction, the kings of Judah and Israel, the books are constructed so as to allow for the telling of the stories of two nations at the same time. So you need to understand that as you're reading it yourself and as we go through the scriptures, it's going to go back and forth um, from Judah uh, to Israel. Um, the books... You know, the writer jumps back and forth, like I said, between the kings. He stays roughly in the same historical period when making the transition. Sometimes what I have trouble with and I've had trouble with when I'm reading kings is when the names are so, like, almost the same. They're just off by one letter. And so who, who are we talking about here and whose son is who? And remember, they're, they're really all related to one another. It's just they're now separated in different, uh, different nations, different kingdoms. A pattern is followed in presenting the kings. So this is the pattern that you will see over and over and over. There's an introduction of the king, and then there are events or specified events of the ruler's life, and the reign are stated. So here's the king. This is his mother, or he, this is who uh, begat, begat that king. Most of the time it talks about the mother. Um, and then it'll say that he uh, ruled... During this time period, sometimes it will say when this person was a king over here, um, how their reign was. A verdict is passed on his reign, reign, like he was a very good king or he was an evil king. He did more evil in the sight of God than the fathers before him. And then there's a conclusion. He died and went to go, um, buried, was buried with his fathers. An introduction, specified events, a verdict is passed by God, and then a conclusion is stated. The importance and we need to understand this as we start to read chapter 1, or as we go into chapter 1, there's an importance of marriage that's still important today according to God's design. God has always willed that marriage be for one man and one woman for life, according to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24, and Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. And knowing this, Polygamy was practiced throughout the Old Testament period. It is never commanded, nor is it encouraged. During this time, a lot of scholars will say that this was the golden age of the prophets. A prophet's job was to call people back to the word of God. That means there was a time when people wandered away from God, just as people do today and so in speaking about polygamy and in the warnings that were given to God's people the Bible goes to great lengths to show the difficulties which arise from it Genesis chapter 21 verses 1 through 14 and verse 29 1 Samuel 1 1 through 8 2 Samuel 11 and there are others 
A specific warning is given to the kings about imitating the rulers of that day by taking many wives. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, scripture says, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. If you remember anything about um, Solomon, and in the stories that we read about him, Solomon's polygamy was the beginning of the end of the united Israel. It's no different than in today's time, any time or any time in society, any time that we go away from God's, any people go away from God's command for what God has designed, things just go wrong. It's, it's just going to it's going to happen. There's no if, ands, buts. It's like living in Alaska. Let, let me say this. When we lived in northwest Florida, it might snow. It, it may snow because we're so close to the Alabama southern border. It may snow. In Alaska, it's going to snow. It's not It's not if it's going to snow. You know it's going to come, right, because of where we're at. God is even more on time than that. If you leave God, things are not going to go great, no matter what it looks like, no matter how good you think your living is. It's not going to go right, and that's what we see here in, in Kings. Under the curse of polygamy, the joy of love and the peace of family are blighted. Polygamy produces horrible results in its children. And in case we're, we're not understanding this word polygamy, having more than one spouse. I'm not just leaving it to the men. Women marry many men. And men marry many women. That's not what God set up. Murderous rivalry often reigns between them and fraternal affection is almost unknown. So having all these children, it is hard to love each one of them. You know, and, and Solomon, well, he had a lot of wives. And there were a lot of children that came along. I, I can only imagine. We know the same thing with David. That happened with him. The sons of different mothers burned with mutual animosities of the harem under whose influence they had been raised. So, again, look at David's children. Look, look at the ones that were trying to kill him. Look at the ones that were trying to take over. I mean, there were problems there. Following God's pattern is always right and is always important, no matter what we believe, what we think as, as humans. The greatest of this biblical historic, uh, of this biblical historian of the kings consists in his firm grasp of the principle that God is the controlling power and sin is the disturbing force in the entire history of men and nations. Well, we should get that understanding from reading Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 3. The world was perfect, everything in it, God made, and then sin came along and disrupted everything. Another lesson through these books, we will see is that the remission of sins does not bring the remission of their consequences. Same thing with us, right? You, there, there are certain sins we will we'll be forgiven for them, but consequences will still happen. Sets out of marriage. 
can produce a child. The child isn't a sin, but uh, fornication or adultery is. And God, if you repent and ask God for forgiveness, he will forgive you for that. But that doesn't necessarily mean the baby's going anywhere, right? I mean, being real, because that still happens today, right? Sin has ripple effects. You all have seen and read about, you know, throwing a pebble in, in the middle of an ocean or middle of a lake. What happens? There are ripple effects, and that's what happens. Imagine that, that pebble is the sin. Throw it out there. Sin goes in, and, and out comes, um, it goes out from, from the middle, that is, from sin, and it goes to us, and then to our spouses, to our children, to our extended family, to the church family, to other folks. It just, it affects all. And as, as I talked about earlier, you know, David did have more than one wife, but Solomon just really, not that his sin was worse than, you know, sin is sin, but, but the gravity of what he did, it just kept on going. The ripples just, it was astronomical, astronomical. So we move into chapter one of First Kings. When we look at chapters one through 11, uh, chapters one through chapters 11, we're covering the reign of Solomon. Um, but right here in chapter 1 through verse 11 of chapter 2, we see David's final arrangements and the suppression of Adonijah. Again, these are problems that come about because of polygamy and the children that are born um, of that. In verses 1 through 4, we see David's failing health. Uh, if you've read this before, you would know that Abishag... Um, the Shudamite, she was brought to David because David is dying. And in David's old age, it was generally felt at this time by people that a young, energetic body would give warmth and a measure of youth to the older person. Abishag was considered David's concubine, but he did not have marital relations with her. And that is clearly seen here in these verses. There's a theory that is out there that in Eastern nations during this time, it was felt that if a king could not have marital relations, his ability to rule and his manhood had left him. Now, it didn't. It wouldn't take me much to look at David and see he's dying. Well, he's probably doesn't need to be king anymore. It didn't. It doesn't take the fact that well he goes and has a, an affair because that's what it would have been with Abishag. That oh well he can still produce children so he he still can be a strong king. David is about to die, okay? And so that wasn't the right thing to do. But man, we humans, we, we come up with some strange things to try to, I don't know, further what we think God would have us to do. Well, if we look at chapter 1 there and look at verse 5, it says, Now Adonijah, the son of, of, of Haggat, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. These are shades. This is a shade of Absalom. If you remember, Absalom, Adonijah's brother, tried to do the same thing. And this is when David wasn't as weak as he is right now. He tried to do the same exact thing. Uh, running heralds ahead of him, as you continue to read in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, of him like Absalom. He was spoiled, and the scripture says that he was handsome. He was easy to look at um, in verse 6. He had influential friends. 
he had David's friends, Joab, who was the general of the ar- um, of David's army. And did you know that Joab was also David's nephew by David's sister, whose name was Zariah? And, and Joab, I just I wanted to let y'all know right now, I do not like him. As I continue to, I'm like, man, you're just not. What kind of friend are you? He's kind of like, like, like Job's friends that came along to try to comfort him. I just, I'm like, what kind of, if I have a friend like you, I don't need any enemies. That's how I feel about Joab. But you'll see as we read. Uh, he was a general of, of, of David's army. And then there's Abathar, or Abithar, who was a high priest. He also had faithful, um, he also had faithful friends of David and Solomon with with him at this time and he pulled along. Zadok in verse eight, the high priest, and Benaniah, the mighty man of the second class, he was the captain of the bodyguard. So he's pulling all these people that David had um to to kind of if these people are with him, like Nathan the prophet and Shemaiah uh, and Ray and mighty men, thirty seven and all. If you have all these men that, that were with David, then it would seem that, oh, well, if they see them with me, I'm the king. And people will see that and, and, and enjoy that. Well, verses 9 through 10 says, And Elijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. He invited all his brothers, but he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, or ben or the mighty man. He didn't have, I, I say he had ben but he didn't have him. But he didn't uh, invite all those 37 men. I was trying, what I was trying to say is that if he had those folks with him, then maybe he wasn't, he wasn't too smart. Cause if he pulled more than with them, you know, even though he was wrong, he would have shown that he was king, but he didn't invite Solomon. He invited all his brothers, but he didn't invite Solomon. I just wonder why. Wonder why. So Nathan and Bathsheba have a plan. Verses eleven through thirty-seven. Nathan, who's a prophet, uh, he he has a plan with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba uh, implements the plan. Uh, she was to remind David about Solomon. Didn't you say that he was going to be the king? Verses 23 through 27, Nathan carries out his part of the plan. And David reconfirms his pledge to Bathsheba. And Solomon shall reign in David's stead. So I, I want us to look at that right quick because I, at times, have been confused about what exactly just happened. Um, Bathsheba was there, and then Nathan was there, and then Bathsheba got called back. So let's let's start at verse 11. It says, Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Higat, has become king, and David, our Lord, does not know it? <coughs> Excuse me. Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once. Go in at once. I lost my place there. Go in at once to King David. <coughs> excuse me. And say to him, did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while 
you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. <coughs> Excuse me. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishad the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king. Although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your lord, excuse me, Solomon, your servant, has he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I may excuse me, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, Here's Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king, and his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day, and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons. The commanders of the army and Abathar or Abithar, the priests, and behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Lord, live, long live, excuse me, King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok, Zadok the priest, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord, the king, and you have not told your servants? who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? Then the king answered, Call Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And, and the reason why I want to read, read that part is because it seemed like Bathsheba was already there, and then Nathan comes in. Why does he have to call her again? So it was the custom. Um, First, I want to make sure that we understand that even though David is about to die, he's sick and he's, or he, he's just an old age, I should say, David still shows his strength and his mental alertness of what's going on. So he calls Bathsheba, and it was a custom that when the king had an audience with his wife or counselor or a third um, party was not to be there. So imagine Bathsheba, she would have left, she would have exited when Nathan came in, and then he would have called her back. So if Maybe you weren't confused, but I was at, at one time, and now I understand it. So I'm just explaining what I understand. You're probably a lot smarter than me than you got it the first time. This is the first time we learn from David he has pledged the throne to anyone. So David's solution um, was to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And he gives all his trusted um, friends. And he has Solomon, in verse 33, sit on a mule on a donkey this is a sign of authority David's mule would have been recognized by the people he anointed Solomon or had Solomon anointed set Solomon on his throne and Benaniah's joy uh, comes with a blessing in verses 36 through 37 and then Solomon is anointed again in verses 38 through 40 you can also look at First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 22 to see the same thing. 
these runners that are talked about there in those verses are also, and executioners, they are also loyal to David. So Jonathan makes the report of Solomon's appointment. This is not Jonathan David's son. Um, one of my kids asked me that. Jonathan, that Jonathan was dead by now. But this is another Jonathan. Adonijah and his friends, and so, so-called friends, you know, when you get money, you get a lot of friends. When you get, get prestige, you get a lot of friends. But as soon as bad news comes and you don't have any money, just like the prodigal son that we read about, all of a sudden those friends just go away. And Jonathan comes and, and says what, what just happened. And all those people <laughs> that were sitting there eating with him, they got up and left. Left him all by himself. David bows to the new king in verse 47 through 48. And like I said, all the supporters in verse 29 of Adonijah, they leave after they've eaten, after they've gotten nice and full. And well, I got what I need. It's on, on, on you now. In history, a few select troops can quickly accomplish a change in kings, which could accomplish a different rule before the whole army can be mustered. And that's what happened uh, for Solomon. Now, in verses 50 through 53, we see that Ananijah pleads for his life. Uh, if you, when you read it, you see that he runs and holds on to the horns of the altar. Uh, this is a symbol of the seat of power and strength. If you read back in Exodus chapter 21, verse 14, you will see that this was provided as a protection to the unintentional manslayer. But there were now cities of refuge for this. So you would, if you were, if you made a mistake, if I made a mistake, Somehow me and, and James are out shoveling snow, and I throw some snow on him, and somehow he falls down and dies. I didn't mean to do that. I'll just run to Wasilla because there's a, you know, altar there, um, or it's a city of refuge, and I put my hands on the altar, and you're supposed to, all y'all that live there, supposed to, you know, give me refuge. This is what Ananijah was trying to do, and this is, this is essentially what he did. Ananijah had no right to claim this refuge. Solomon could have left him there to starve or left him on his own and be subject to death. Now, his servant in verse 51, let's read that. Then it was told to Solomon, behold, Ananijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Solomon's forgiveness is conditional. And you compare this with Second uh, Samuel 23 through, um, 1 through 7. David also has some prophetic words to say about this or on this. Chapter 23, not necessarily this, this uh, what just happened, but it says in verse 1 of Second Samuel chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. 
The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Apologize. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me, excuse made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with the iron and the shaft of the spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. The main thing that I wanted to pull out from that is in verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. God is going to take care of them. And what we already see with Solomon, Solomon hasn't even asked for wisdom yet. What we see from he's already has some wisdom within him and that he didn't take immediate revenge on on his brother. Though, I mean, if you if you have siblings, let's just say when you were kids, I, I wouldn't say now, but when you were kids, didn't you sometimes just want to kill your I mean, you didn't like, really want to kill them, but you just oh so angry at them. They, you do do that again. Do it again. You know, and, and you were going to reach out and touch them. I, I, I would hope that we would be like Solomon, at least in this instance. And we would give him a measure of grace, just as God has given to us. Solomon is already right now showing us that he has the potential to lead well. Well, that's our lesson for today. Next week, we will cover um, chapter 2 through chapter, closely to chapter chapter 4, um, chapter 4, verse 21. So, if you want to get ahead of what we're reading, chapter 2 through chapter 4, just go ahead and read that. And again, um, I'm not going to read <clears throat> all the scriptures with, with you. I will cover it, though, because there's a lot of material to cover. And I want to make sure that we, we're able to get through the through it, but... Uh, the key verse that you need to read for sure for next week is 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 Kings chapter 2 verse 2. Let us have a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, thank you for this time that we've spent studying your word. Help us, Lord, that we may continue to get into your word and just relish in all the teachings that are there. There's so much, Lord God, and we're so grateful to you that you allowed us to have the Bible that we can just get lost in it, Lord God, and see how life was lived so long ago, but how you are still the same, how you expect us to continue to obey you, Lord, to do your will. Help us to get that understanding, Lord. We thank you, and we ask that you bless us now as we close our class and get ready for worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. We are dismissed.